Let us pray. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word, O God, will stand forever. As we read your word this morning, we pray that by the power of your spirit, we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our reading continues from Galatians chapter 5, right where the first reading left off. We start now with verse 7. Let us listen together for God's word to us. You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth? Such persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. I am confident about you in the Lord that you will not think otherwise. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. But my brothers and sisters, why am I still being persecuted if I am still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who have been keeping score at home, you might have noticed that we skipped right over chapter 4 of Galatians. There are a couple reasons for this. One is that Lent is bearing down on us, and I have to get through this sermon series before a new one begins in just a couple of weeks. Another reason is because chapter 4 is uh, a good example of Paul indulging in his first century Greco-Roman philosophical rhetoric and And it's a challenge to preach on, frankly. Um, I'll summarize it for you in a moment. But chapter 3, you'll remember, was Paul emphasizing that the law served an important purpose. It was, he called it a disciplinarian or a guardian um, until faith came in Christ. But because faith has come, because Christ has come, the law is no longer the criterion that, that determines inclusion in the family of God, it's no longer the source of righteousness. And in order to illustrate the relationship that we now have with the law, he, in chapter 4, he creates an allegory of using the story of Abraham and his concubine Hagar and his wife Sarah and their sons. Hagar gave birth to Ishmael and Sarah gave birth to Isaac Ishmael was born into slavery, according to Paul. Isaac was the son of the promise who was born into freedom. And we, in Christ, are born into freedom. That's all you need to know about chapter 4. Not really. I'm sure there's a lot there. What Paul is doing now, as he enters into chapter 5, is he's sharpening his language about this relationship between grace and law. He's sharpening that contrast, and also at the same time, he is sharpening his tongue. He starts to talk about freedom in chapter 5, and he, if, you, if you were paying close attention, you may have caught what sounded like it might be a pun, and you were right when he says that those who insist on circumcision have been cut off from Christ. That is very intentional, not an accident. 
And then when Paul says, I wish those who are unsettling you would just go all the way and castrate themselves, that is Paul's temper. Finally unleashed. You remember at the start of this letter that Paul is angry with the Galatians. The letter began with Paul's anger, and it only continues. And now in chapter 5, we are reaching the climax of his theological argument, and we're also reaching now the fullest expression of his frustration and his problems with the law. Although that's probably not the best way to put it, it's not so much problems with the law for Paul as it is problems with how the Galatian church is using the law. Problems with their relationship or their reliance upon the law. For the Galatians, the law is a litmus test. It's a kind of shortcut for them that allows them to sidestep some of the harder aspects of what it takes to, uh, to build and to maintain Christian community. Now, looking at this letter from the 21st century, 2,000-plus years removed from Paul, it's easy to feel like these concerns are no longer ours. There's a Jew and a Gentile conflict going on in this letter, which we intellectually, academically understand, but that conflict isn't really relevant to us today. There's a, a debate, a theological debate between grace and law, but we are Protestant Christians 400 years removed from the Protestant Reformation. We have settled the question of grace and law. We're not debating that anymore. And this is how we like to read Paul, because Paul is very theological with his language in his letters, and so we like to read him through a theological lens. But that's not the only way to read Paul, and maybe not the best way to read Paul. Paul was first and foremost an evangelist, sent out to the Gentile world to share the good news of the gospel, and out there in that Gentile world to plant churches to nurture Christian communities. And his theology was always and only ever in service of those ends, the ends of sharing the gospel and of nurturing Christian community. But if we read Paul as if he is writing a book of academic theology, and then we just take away our theological nuggets like justification by faith, that's a good one, let's hold on to that one, and grace over law. We like that one too. We're going to keep that one. But then we just chalk up the rest to an immature Christian community who just didn't know any better. But we know better now, so we're okay. But if we take that theological lens and sort of move it to the background a little bit and bring forward Paul's concern for the nature of Christian community, we see something different happening in Paul's conversation with the Galatians, what we see is that the Galatians have clear and obvious and rigid markers of who belongs and who doesn't, an easy shorthand to distinguish insider from outsider, what amounts to a very effective filtration system that keeps out the undesirables. And while we may feel like arcane arguments over theological points like justification by faith don't have so much relevance for us today. How about the accusation that the church is too good at labeling outsiders? That might hit a little closer to home. 
How about the accusation that the church has developed practices that feel like faithfulness but really just function to separate the church from the world? How about the accusation that the church pursues religious adherence but neglects real faithfulness? These are some of the charges that Paul levels against the Galatians. These charges could apply to the church, I think, in any age. And for Paul, a community that is defined in this way would be completely incapable of being a messenger of the good news in the first century or in the 21st century. And this is certainly the state of the Galatian church. For them, circumcision is a quick and easy shorthand for whether or not someone keeps the law. And keeping the law is the litmus test for belonging to the family of God. And belonging to the church, the family of God, is what it means to participate in the grace of Christ. So therefore, if someone is not circumcised, they do not participate in the grace of Christ. It's that clear. It's that simple. It's really neat and tidy when you think about it. Or to use a Presbyterian term of art, it's very decent and in order. There are no surprises here. No one gets to cheat the system. Everyone is expected to rise to the same level of commitment. There's no gray area, no uncertainty. Uncertainty makes us anxious. We don't like to be anxious. What the Galatians have done is essentially created a walled garden. They have created a closed system that provides them with safety and security and comfort. And they like it. Since you all are Floridians, I'm going to tell you about something magical that exists in the Midwest. It's called a basement. And a basement is a below-grade part of your house that is a wonderland for children. Basements have second-hand couches that are dirty and really comfortable and lots of pillows and kids can make messes in basements and no one who, who comes to visit the house ever sees those messes so they can just remain forever and ever. Amen. My kids, when we lived in Michigan, would use our basement for building forts because, again, forts, forts get built and they never get cleaned up unless mom and dad get involved. So the basement was an ideal place for this. And I would sometimes help. And when I helped, we could get a little more creative. I could bring kitchen chairs from, from upstairs down. And we could create tunnels and passageways and all of this. But when the kids made their own forts, they were much simpler. And usually what they would, they would do is, is just drape a blanket over something that created just enough space underneath for them to hunker down. No way in, no way out without moving stuff around. Their own little secret private space. And they might bring in stuffed animals or a book or coloring books or if they were lucky enough, an iPad and have their screen time in there and then just hope we forget about them forever. And they can just watch TV endlessly this is what they liked this is the kind of kind of secluded secret space that they would like to create and we can understand this institutionally speaking i think we can understand this we belong to a well-built institution with policies and processes and boundaries 
Now, I love the Presbyterian Church. I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't love the Presbyterian Church. And I think that the Presbyterian Church has great strengths when compared to some of the other historic Christian traditions, but of course, we also have our weaknesses. This is something called the Book of Order. You can see how thick it is. In fairness, in fairness, this is an older version of the Book of Order. So now it's about 20% thinner. So the current Book of Order is a little bit thinner. This book has policies, procedures, boundaries, rules. This book is our fort. Keeps us safe. We don't have to grapple with uncertainty because we have the answers. We don't have to expand our sense of identity or purpose, at least not without a duly selected committee and their recommendation to the larger body. We don't have to accommodate disturbances that come in from outside the system, at least not until they've been fully processed and digested and reprogrammed to fit so that everything is decent and in order, it gives us safety and security and comfort. It's our fort. It's our law. In creating this closed system, this clean system, the Galatians, Paul says, using that pun, they have cut themselves off from Christ. They've closed themselves off. They've built a fort with no way in. With no way in, and in so doing, he says, they have fallen away from grace. And we might hear those words and think that Paul is saying they've lost the grace of God, that they no longer have access to the grace of God. But that's not how grace works. If you can lose it, it's not grace. Paul is not saying that they've lost God's grace. What he is saying when he says they've fallen away is that they have failed to embody the grace of Christ, which is what the church is called to do. The word he uses to say falling away is a word that is also used to describe a ship that has drifted off course. The church has lost its way. And Paul describes their situation as slavery, as, as a kind of captivity, which is why he goes to all the trouble to develop the contrast between freedom and slavery in chapter four in his allegory because the Galatians have fallen captive to their law, to their shortcuts and their litmus tests, to their shibboleths and their identity markers. They have fallen captive to their walled garden, to this closed system. They drew a border they built a wall, and now they're trapped inside. Now they're cut off from Christ. Now they have fallen away from their purpose, which is to be a sign of grace in the world. If we function, we the church, the big church, if we function as a closed system, a, a walled garden, our own little fort, when we face challenges and uncertainties, the questions that we will instinctively ask are questions like, how do we protect the system? How do we preserve what we've built? How do we keep further disturbances away? And we fall back on, on our law. And we remain safe. 
and comfortable and captive and ultimately cut off from Christ, fallen away from our purpose, which is to be a sign of grace in the world. So what are we then? What are we to be if we are not a closed system, a walled garden? It's simple, really. We are to be a source. We are to be a source. We are to be a community that actively generates goodness and injects it into the world. We are to be a wellspring of love and compassion and generosity that overflows into the lives of those around us. And if that's what we are, if we are a source, if we are a wellspring, then when we face those challenges, when we face those uncertainties, the questions that we will instinctively ask are not questions like, how do we protect the institution? How do we preserve what we've built? The questions we ask are, what does goodness demand of us? What does love demand of us? What does compassion demand? What does generosity demand of us? Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The litmus tests, they count for nothing. The procedures and the processes, they count for nothing. The only thing that counts, and now I'm quoting Paul directly, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. So we are free. We are no longer captive to sin, and we are no longer captive to the laws of our own making. We are free to be a source of goodness, plain and simple, free to be a wellspring of love and compassion and generosity. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Let us pray. God, we desire to be your faithful church, but we have such strong tendencies to fall back into what makes us feel safe and comfortable. So we pray that you would continue to disturb us and unsettle us so that our life together might be a sign of grace, your grace, for this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.